Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Stories we look at on this episode of This Week in FCPA include using behavioral psychology to make compliance changes, tackling money laundering and real estate transactions, Archigo's founder indicted for fraud, testing culture, the renewed need for board oversight of compliance, economic sanctions are now a national security issue, why compliance is a competitive advantage, toll holdings and export control compliance failures, board making decisions under a stakeholder model, and what to measure in DEI. All this and more on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitor himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 299 for the week ending, April 29, 2022, the Yankees cheated and lost edition. Yes, I know you're shocked, just shocked to find out that the Yankees cheated. But here's the thing. The Astros and Red Sox cheated, and we won the World Series. Woo! Woo! How bad does that make the Yankees look? But that's not why we're here. No lessons on Yankees cheating, although I'm sure Jay could probably talk extemporaneously for months on the Yankees cheating in his lifetime only. But we're here to take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories in the Yankees cheated and lost edition. Jay, what say ye? I say uh, I'm, I'm taking pleasure in the Yankees loss, and I'm ready to start looking at the top 10 stories of the week. What does Vera Sherapanova have to tell us on the FCPA blog? So uh, Vera is back with her continuing series on the use of behavioral psychology in um, not simply compliance programs, but really in the corporate world. And she's been looking at banks who've engaged in um, sort of behavioral risk assessments to see how they might be able to influence uh, corporate culture through the behavior of their individuals. And uh, it's very interesting in this um, blog post, she focuses on not really individuals, and she says managing behavioral risk is not about assessing individuals and their character, but looking into the group habit and norms along the lines of the standard, uh, that's how things are done here. And so she has previously talked about subculture audits and smaller uh, ways and groups to look at um, uh, how a business is done in a corporation. 
And she posits that behavioral change interventions based on social norms, uh, she believes are low cost yet effective ways in transforming behaviors and they tap into the power and reduce unwanted behaviors. But it's really around the group and having the clarity on all of that allows you to set up an appropriate intervention. So um, I think, Jay, we have in the compliance space in the United States have really focused on individual behaviors and nudges and other behavioral strategies, uh, incentives, um, et cetera, or perhaps uh, the stick in addition to the carrot. But uh, Vera's really uh, taking a broader approach. But the thing I'd like to, to really remind our listeners, Jay, is this is not Vera just thinking this stuff up. Uh, she's taking a deep dive into approaches European banks are using. And these are European banks that have gotten in significant trouble over the last five to 10 years for AML violations, <clears throat> sanctions violations, and a wide variety of breaking of other U.S. laws, including the FCPA. So uh, I'm going to continue to follow this, and we're going to continue to talk about this. And you might want to think about, if you're a compliance professional listening, about um, the subcultures within your organization and how those might influence individual behaviors more than uh, simply individuals. Um, Jay, uh, what do you think about money laundering in or tackling money laundering in real estate transactions? This article comes to us from Ella Hawkins, and she's writing in the GAB Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It's no secret that foreign kleptocrats and other crooks like to stash their illicit cash in the U.S. real estate market. A recent report from Global Financial Integrity, GFI, found that more than 2.3 billion U.S. dollars were laundered through the real estate in the last five years. The large majority of these cases used a trust, shell company, or other legal entity to attempt to mask the true owner of the property. With the backing of the Biden administration, the U.S. Treasury Department's Financial Crime Enforcement Network, FinCEN, has published an advance notice of proposed rulemaking that proposes a number of measures and floats different options for tightening AML controls. Ella offers three recommendations for what Treasury should and should not do when it finalizes these rules. <clears throat> First, while the most straightforward approach to real estate money laundering, abbreviated as REML, might seem to be imposing on real estate service providers requirements comparable to those imposed in the financial sector under the Bank Secrecy Act. This is not the approach that FinCEN should embrace. The BSA covered entities to develop elaborate internal compliance systems, but such systems are extremely costly, and most of the settlement service providers in the real estate industry, including real estate agents, brokers, title agents, and real estate attorneys are small-sized businesses that don't have the capacity to take on a labor-intensive program. Second, while applying the full set of BSA requirements to the real estate sector would be inappropriate, FinCEN can and should impose on the sector greater reporting obligations, particularly concerning the true ownership of legal entities. FinCEN already took an important step in this direction in 2016, when it announced the so-called Geographic Targeting Orders, GTOs. Third, FinCEN should adopt regulations specifically targeted at commercial real estate. Most of the attention on REML has focused on residential. Think Gaudi Mar Malibu mansions and Manhattan penthouse 
departments. But GFI's study found that more than 30% of U.S. REML cases it identified involved commercial real estate properties. The principal reason for this is that CRE transactions are typically much more complex, involving webs of stakeholders and greater number of agents and possible gatekeepers across multiple jurisdictions. As, as explained in the GFI report, it's one thing to identify the beneficial owner and source of funds for the purchaser of a home or an apartment, but it's quite another thing to carry out extensive customer due diligence. FinCEN is on the cusp of finally pushing forward via REML regulations, and by enacting a permanent nationwide rule, one that covers both residential and commercial real estate sectors and ensures ownership transparency in all transactions, then FinCEN can make significant headway in the fight against real estate money laundering. Tom, what is our colleague Jacqueline Jager writing about this week on Compliance Week? Uh, Jay, she writes about the Archegos founder, Bill Huang, uh, who led the Archegos Capital Management into $10 billion of losses in literally um, a couple of weeks last year, has now been uh, charged by the, criminally charged, I should say, by the Securities and Exchange Commission and the CFCTFT. The uh, charges were around uh, misrepresentation and um, lies which were allegedly told to banks, uh, which lent money to Artigos to take some incredibly risky positions in the stock market. And Jay, where you and I might take a flyer on a company and uh, maybe buy some stock that uh, potentially could go high, but we could potentially lose everything. Uh, this uh, Wang was putting down um, billions on uh short-term bets that when uh, the stock price tanked, uh, specifically around Viacom, uh, they were left with um, uh, a $10 billion investment led to a $160 billion exposure due to uh, going short and then having margin calls. So this led to um, Archegos losing $8 billion over the course of two weeks in 2021. And it was truly a house of cards. The uh, breadth and scope and speed of the collapse was something that uh, we very rarely see. Uh, Several major banks, including Credit Suisse and others, took billion-dollar losses out of this. And the thing that uh, really intrigued me from the securities perspective, because uh, you might think this is really a kind of a bank fraud case, was that um, Wang's firm had something called a family exemption from reporting, and meaning that because of the structure of their firm, family money, they didn't have to report their positions publicly or to the SEC. And at one point, uh, Archegos had uh, 60% of the publicly traded stock of Viacom, um, And think of Elon Musk, who had to disclose a 5% stake in Twitter. And this was not done, apparently, to manipulate the market in terms of uh, the value of the stock. But um, when uh, uh, Viacom didn't even know 
that they had this large of an owner. And so lots of corporate governance issues. But when Viacom uh, went in the tank, uh, it pretty much signaled the ruin for Archegos. So it's going to be interesting to see, one, if he's extradited, two, comes to the U.S. to stand trial and, and what the trial will be. But this was truly one of the most catastrophic failures we've seen and indeed has led the SEC to potentially consider revising uh, the family exemption and put family-funded investment funds on the same footing as other investment funds in terms of their disclosure requirements. Uh, Jay, um, why is testing culture so important? Good question, Tom. Uh, this is the first of two from our good friend Dylan Tokar at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. Uh, this week, or actually the end of last week, last Friday, Dylan recapped some takeaways from last week's Practicing Law Institute's two-day conference on FCPA. Recently, regulators have pushed companies to foster a culture among, a culture among their employees that encourages compliance with U.S. laws but measures whether a company has achieved that goal can be tricky. Companies looking to measure their compliance culture typically resort to a range of methods from strategic interviews with supervisors who oversee risky parts of business, all the way to employee perception surveys and focus groups run by consultants. Quote, you have to have things, wonder you can have wonderful things on paper and you can have a huge stable of people doing compliance. But if the culture doesn't value it, they're never going to be successful. So said Charles Kane, the chief of the Securities and Exchange Commission FCPA unit. Incentivizing employees, rather, the incentives employees are given within their organization to be ethical and fully comply with U.S. laws play a crucial role in establishing the right culture, according to participants in a separate panel. If you want to know how people are going to behave, look at how they're incentivized to behave. This quote comes from my affiliated monitor's colleague, Audrey Harris. She's a managing director at AMI, and she knows what she's talking about as she's a former chief compliance officer for Australian mining company, BHP. New chief compliance officers can begin assessing an organization's culture by looking for pressure points or high-risk areas within an organization, Harris said. They should also look for parts of the company where employees are fully engaged with compliance staff. She shared that in-house or externally led focus groups can be an effective way to understand what's going on within your company's culture. It's just that really free-flowing conversation that is a benefit unto itself for the culture, she said. But if you really want to know what employees think, those types of scenarios really give management a real insight above and beyond surveys of things of that nature. Salespeople are often given incentives through commissions, but figuring out how to provide similar awards for good compliance can be difficult, said Julia Simon, Vice President and Chief Compliance Officer of Houston-based KBR Inc. Ms. Simon said her company includes compliance targets in KPIs and goals for employees, but measuring success in meeting those objectives can be tricky, panelists said, because sometimes all you have to go off of is whether or not an employee completed a particular training program. Tom, why is there a renewed need for board oversight of compliance? Uh, Jay, this article comes to us from our friend um, Michael Peregrine, and it appears in the Harvard Law School, um, I'm sorry, in CCI. Uh, we'll get to the Harvard Law School uh, in a little bit. 
And he goes back to the Lisa Monaco speech, and he sees five points for renewed emphasis from the board perspective. Uh, one, the expectation that corporations subject to federal criminal exposure must provide information on all individuals responsible, i.e. reinstitution of the Yates memo. Two, corporations that resolve exposure through DPAs may also be subject to independent monitorships. We saw that last week with the Stericycle FCPA Enforcement Action. Three, additional federal resources will be provided to assist prosecutors in evaluating incidents of corporate crime. Four, increased consideration of a corporation's prior criminal and regulatory history will be applied in making decisions. And then five, a more uniform approach will be adopted to corporate enforcement across the DDOJ and U.S. Attorney's offices. Obviously, there's remediation credits available uh, from the FCPA Corporate Enforcement Program, but the board, uh, he says, may wish to do the following, a board committee or the board itself, enhance resources available to executive leadership to evaluate the risk associated with strategies and initiatives, review and enhance necessary corporate commitments to indemnification and advancement payments, and consider additional efforts intended to support and demonstrate a tone at the top culture by the CEO and others. So great reminder from Michael. He writes on uh, board issues uh, quite a bit and uh, something that I think every compliance officer needs to communicate to its board of directors, its obligations under a best practices compliance program. Uh, so Jay, um, we have our second piece from Dylan Tokar. What does he have for us on either a double-double or a pizza pizza? <laughs> well, this is a question we're going to get to in the middle of this story, but um, the DAG Monaco asks, are sanctions the new FCPA? The U.S. Justice Department has made sanctions evasion and export control violations a central focus of its white-collar enforcement program following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, officials said Wednesday. The focus should have a profound effect on businesses and their efforts to comply with U.S. laws. Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco said at a New York City bar event this week. The way that multinational companies have to think about these sanction regimes are going to be affecting their businesses is critically important and something we should have conversations about, said the DAG. Bribery has long been the primary focus of federal prosecutors' corporate investigations. The Justice Department's white-collar enforcement efforts increasingly have a national security focus, Monaco said, and one way to think about this is as sanctions being the new FCPA. Financial institutions often are the first entities to be held responsible for sanctions violations, particularly in situations where they process payments. But the companies also need to be aware of the rules, including by applying know-your-customer processes to supply chains, Monaco said. The Biden administration last year said it was making rooting out corruption a central pillar of its national security agenda, issuing a directive it said would, be, would increase collaboration between government agencies on issues such as kleptocracy and illicit finance. In the wake of the invasion of Ukraine in February, the Justice Department launched an interagency task force dedicated to enforcing sanctions and export control measures implemented against Russia in response to its military action. Andrew Adams, co-chief of the Justice Department's Klepto Capture Task Force, said the new team would draw on 
existing department resources to prosecute individuals and companies evading sanctions and to seize assets that are linked to corrupt oligarchs. Tom, why can compliance be a competitive advantage? We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more on This Week in FCPA. Jay, I've long advocated that compliance, uh, effective compliance equates to more efficient business processes, equates to greater ROI and profitability. And uh, in an article in NAVEX, no longer NAVEX Global, now NAVEX, Risk and Compliance Matters blog, uh, they argue that uh, indeed compliance is a competitive advantage for small to medium businesses. But they point out a couple of other things that – in addition to the process improvements, one is profitability through employee engagement and that the correlation between employee engagement and profitability shows engaged workforces were 21% more profitable than organizations without. If we kind of go back to Dr. Kyle Welch's seminal work uh, with NAVEX on whistleblower systems, he also showed that companies with robust whistleblower systems and reporting processes uh, are more profitable generally. And that's because not simply a a level of trust exists by employees, but also uh, you have the ability to improve your corporation. Whistleblowers are not simply those who report illegal or unethical acts. When you have people who are willing to raise their hand and suggest process improvements, that can greatly improve your um, Uh, overall uh, corporate culture leading to greater uh, efficiencies as well. Ethics and compliance is a cornerstone of workplace culture. And so if you take uh, kind of all of those, in addition to my process argument, I think you can see that an ENC program can be a very big financial benefit to a company if you fully incorporate really all of the concepts of compliance. It's not just having written policies and procedures in a code. It's not simply management, not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. It's re- assessing your risk, managing that risk, understanding where you have risk that you can improve the risk management strategies you have put in place, whether that's in your supply chain, whether that's your third parties, uh, and then continually monitoring and continually assessing. You see, begin to see that that's really a way to improve the process of your company. So uh, kudos to Navex um, for this. Uh, We have uh, our weekly offering from the coolest guy in compliance. What does he have for us? So this is Matt writing in his own blog, Radical Compliance. And Matt wants to share some lessons on sanctions programs. Anyone looking for systemic failures in sanctions compliance and how a company might rectify those issues can look no further than the recent toll holdings and its settlement it reached with U.S. regulators this past Monday. Toll, a freight forwarding and logistics company based in Australia, agreed to pay $6.1 million to the Office of Foreign Asset Control, OFAC, to settle charges that it repeatedly violated U.S. sanction laws in the 2010s by shipping goods to or from North Korea, Iran, 
Syria and various persons on sanction watch lists. The details in OVAC settlement order paint an unflattering picture. Toll rapidly expanded through the Asia Pacific by acquiring local freight forwarding companies, but never followed up with excuse me, adequate sanctions, controls, and processes. The end result of $48.4 million worth of transactions that violated U.S. sanctions. As recounted in the OFAC settlement order, Toll's misconduct ran from 2013 to 2019 when the company handled more than 2,900 transactions. The root problem was that while Toll did have a sanctions policy, it had little in the way of an actual compliance program to enforce the policy across the sprawling and growing empire. OFAC says in the, in the settlement, beginning in 2007, Toll began to acquire a number of small local or regional freight forwarders. And by 2017, Toll had almost 600 invoicing data payment and other system applications spread across business units. While Toll had a sanctions compliance policy in place, its compliance program personnel and associated controls failed to keep up with the complexity of its growing operations. We've heard similar woes many times before in FCPA enforcement actions, rapid international expansion with no commensurate scaling of the program. We even heard it recently last week when Tom, as Tom talked about the Stericycle settlement where they agreed to pay 84 million to cover FCPA charges in Latin America. Toll reminds us that the same lackadaisical approach can plague sanctions compliance too perhaps to an even greater extent since sanctions compliance can be so complex. In July 2015, the CEO of one of Toll's operating divisions sent an email to employees reminding them of the company's international sanctions obligations. Only in 2017 did Toll take dramatic action. Then it implemented hard controls on its freight management systems that enabled the country and local codes for ports and cities and sanctioned countries. By then, of course, the damage had already been done. If you'd like to get down into the weeds, Matt goes through calculating the compliance factors, both aggravating and mitigating, showing how the potential maximum penalty of $826.4 million was winnowed down to an almost acceptable and more palatable $6.1 million. Cheers to the lawyers who did that. Starting in 2017, Toll began taking concrete steps to stand up a compliance program. At an abstract level, they aren't much different from what you'd implement for an anti-corruption program. Policies and procedures, sufficiently strong compliance leader, due diligence for third parties, employee training. It's all straight from the sentencing guidelines or the FCPA resource guide. The true lesson here is to implement those steps from the very start of your expansion so you can scale up properly as your business expands. Otherwise, your compliance risk race along with the business expansion while your compliance program staggers far behind, which alas is another table that we've heard too many times. Tom, how can boards make decisions using a stakeholder model? So this is actually a contrarian piece, Jay. And uh, Robert Miller from the University of Iowa writes that uh, he doesn't believe it's possible. And so uh, the reason I, I raise this is I would like uh, boards to really think about what's the way you're going to implement a stakeholder model. Uh, Miller sees that if you have multiple 
stakeholders, you can't make a decision. And I think that's horse hockey. Uh, you evaluate it and make a business uh, decision using the business judgment rule, uh, just the same way you would make a business judgment rule decision now. And uh, if you want to, to meet a point to an example, I'm going to say Twitter, uh, the Twitter board. What uh, is the obligation of the Twitter board now that they've accepted Elon Musk's offer, but now he's attacking the company in spite of a non-disparagement clause in the purchase uh, documents? Uh, so one, he's, he's broken the agreement already. What does that mean for Twitter? It probably means he'll destroy the company. But um, is the board required to take that into account? Possibly. Uh, they may think that uh, taking the money and running is uh, better than uh, keeping the company as a viable business option for uh, shareholders down the road. So just by that uh, short hypothetical, I, sh I hope I've shown there are always multiple issues a board must tangle. So uh, I'd like uh, board members to think through their obligations. And as they broaden out their analysis, they're going to have to certainly uh, evaluate competing interests. But that doesn't mean that you can't use the business judgment rule to make a reasonable business decision. Uh, Jay, <clears throat> what should you measure in DEI? Thanks for asking, Tom. Uh, this comes to us from the practicalesg.com blog, and it's by, hopefully I'll get the name right, Ngozi Okat. PracticalESG.com recently wrapped up the first session of a three-part DEI workshop series covering DEI data. The series is all about discovering metrics that highlight the gaps that guide DEI strategy. And in this first session, they covered collecting DEI data, what to measure and why. As Ngozi had blogged, the success of a corporate DEI initiative and of those tasked with leading them comes down to whether there are measurable outcomes, but measuring diversity, equity, and inclusion is a complicated and often misunderstood task. A lack of data is one of the biggest risks that DEI practitioners face. The excellent speakers all delivered a number of valuable takeaways about how to collect and leverage data to define their DEI goals, drive strategy, and measure progress. One attendee shared that they came away with five pages of notes well, I won't give you five pages, but I'll give you the top three learnings. Number one, there are numerous data points to measure. Data points that an organization will measure are dependent upon the organization's DEI goals, stage, resources, and priorities. To measure diversity, you'll want to understand representation of different groups and the impacts of hiring and attrition trends for targeted groups. To measure equity, organizations may look internally at gaps in performance ratings and promotion rates by demographics. And measuring inclusion and belonging often focus on capturing data on a sentiment. Most organizations will use employee engagement surveys or st standalone inclusion surveys. Number two, account for intersectionality. Gender economist and pipeline equity founder Katika Roy and diversity, diversity IQ Cheryl Cole spoke about the importance of accounting for intersectionality. Intersectionality includes the many ways that people fit into more than one underrepresented or marginalized group. Katika cited the many ways that the identity can overlap for intersectional experience, just for race, gender, and age. These intersections can shed light on whether organizations are building for inclusion. And number three, use the data to take action. 
Diversity IQ Cheryl Cole also pointed out to the importance of using data that you collect. If you're asking your employees to spend time and transparency on answering questions about their experiences of DEI, you need to show them that it leads to change. Employees will lose trust in the organization and leadership if no action is taken or if the results of employee feedback are not communicated so they may not respond to future surveys. If you'd like to listen to this lesson, please, uh, session, please find the link in the show notes. And also be sure to catch up on the next session in the series, which is Understanding Using Equity Audits and Civil Rights Audits. And attending this session, be prepared with, will prepare you with practical insights for the next, which, next practical ESG uh, webinar, which will include a lively combination between Eric Holder Jr., the senior counsel at Covington and the 82nd U.S. Attorney General, and Laura Murphy, president of Laura Murphy Associates, a pioneer in civil rights audits about their work together and where the field is going. So, Tom, that's the 10 stories for the week. What new podcasts and old returning favorites do we have to highlight? Jay, I had one of my favorite podcasts on the Hill Country podcast. I interviewed a woman, Julia Kardioshinsky, and she's the Kerrville cookie lady. Uh, she uh, learned cookie baking as a child in a large family. When they had a big family meal, she was assigned the cookies. So that's how she learned how to bake cookies. But she uses cookies in ways, uh, baking cookies that I had not heard of. The first one was... Uh, after her father died, she was uh, in deep grief, and she actually used baking to help get out of her grief. Uh, the second thing is she's a very spiritual woman, and she finds her passion around cooking. Uh, she finds that honoring God uh, when she bakes a cookie uh, and does it to the best of her ability. And, you know, I'd never heard anybody say that. Um, when you go in her store, I'm sure you've been in many bakeries, and you know what it's like to order a cake, and it turns out it's not right. Sometimes it's an important event, a birthday, an anniversary, a wedding, and things can get a little stressful. Well, that never happens in a cookie store. People go in there, they may be grumpy, but they always come out with a smile on their face. And if you go in Julia's store, uh, if you go in there once, she knows you. And as she said, she looked at me and said, you're that brownie guy. You come in my cookie <laughs> store and buy brownies. So uh, it was a lot of fun. And if you uh, have, if you enjoy baking cookies, it's a pod for you. Uh, I continue my uh, podcast on the intersection of ESG and compliance. Uh, this week, I had Travis Miller and Jared Connors from Ascent Compliance talking about the intersection of supply chain in ESG. It, it was really a great episode. Um, I concluded my one-month visit with Susan Divers on the Compliance Life in episode four, part four, posting this week. Susan moved from the CCO chair of AECOM over to uh, LRN, where she's the director of thought leadership. And it's a fascinating continuing exploration of her uh, journey in compliance. We have a new editor-in-chief at Compliance Week. Kyle Rashur has taken over the reins from Dave Leefort. So we had a change in from the editor's desk. And this, uh, although Kyle took over a few months ago, this is the first time I've been able to have him on as the EIC at Compliance Week. So we had a, a great addition. Uh, we had a great talk about uh, some sports, Jay. We haven't even mentioned the Celtics sweep. So uh, did you know the Celtics swept the Nets? I am a fair weather fan, and I got my broom just in time for game four. Excellent, excellent. Well, anyway, we had a deep uh, – Kyle uh, is – 
uh, just like Dave, he's a homer, just like you, he's a homer. <laughs> and uh, so we talked Celtics basketball, but we talked about what people call in sports chemistry, but it's really culture. And so we talked about the culture of this team and how it's come together literally over the last third of the season where two-thirds into the season it was unclear if they'd make the playoffs. Well, now I think many people believe they'll make the Eastern Conference Finals and perhaps even you know, into the NBA Finals itself uh, with some of the injuries from some of the other teams. So uh, it was a really fascinating conversation. I, I pay tribute to a nearly 50-year sports writer from Texas named John McClain, someone I grew up reading. And uh, so I said a few things about John. And then Kyle talked about um, kind of growing up as a sports journalist uh, right out of college and doing that. And uh, his, uh, you know, his first year as a professional journalist was 2013. So pretty impactful for the Red Sox. So he, uh, he's been spoiled. So um, anyway, uh, great conversation with Kyle. Uh, check it out. And then, of course, uh, Compliance Week 2022. I'm doing an entire podcast series on the speakers. That's available on Megaphone and the Compliance Podcast Network or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And there's a special discount for listeners to this podcast of $200 with a discount code TFLAW200 off. And I've linked to registration in the agenda. So just insert that uh, code and you'll get $200 off from Compliance Week. Uh, I can't wait. It'll be the first major full compliance conference since the pandemic. And uh, I can't wait to see everybody. Everybody who's going says, we can't wait to see everybody. So I hope you'll join us at Compliance Week 2020. Jay, what about you? Uh, I guess it's time for me to take us home. So as you guys know, Tom Fox is the voice of compliance. He can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And I'm Jay Rosen, a.k.a. Mr. Monitor. You can reach me at the initial J-R-O-S-E-N at affiliatedmonitors.com. So on behalf of Tom Fox, I'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 299 for the week ending April 29th, 2022, the aforementioned The Yankees Cheated and Lost edition. We appreciate you spending some of your week with us, and we look forward to seeing you next week when we take a look at This Week in FCPA. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to This Week in FCPA. I hope you will check out my five-part podcast series, Taxman, on the intersection of tax and compliance. It's an area that is rarely discussed in compliance, and it turns out there's quite a bit of intersection and overlap between tax and compliance. So check it out, Taxman, on the intersection of tax and compliance with Tracy Howell on the Innovation and Compliance podcast series on the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week for another episode of This Week in FCPA. Jay can be reached at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Finally, if you've not done so, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It would help our ratings and help get the message out about the only weekly wrap-up of items in compliance this week in FCPA. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.